this is Steve Sandy for Tangible Tech, and I want to welcome you to episode two. The first episode was really kind of a, well, saying goodbye to Apple World Today news update and saying hello to this podcast. Now, we're not being distributed absolutely everywhere yet. That's uh, hopefully going to happen sometime this week. But uh, I'm encouraged by the number of people who have been listening to the first episode. So thank you very much for listening. Tell all your friends about it. Like us. Applaud us. Do all those great things to help this podcast continue into the future. Uh, Today, I'm going to be doing a little roundup of interesting tech stories that we normally wouldn't have covered on Apple World Today, or especially during the Apple World Today News Update podcast. Uh, The first one is really kind of a cool use of drone technology, and as many of you know, I'm a drone fanatic. I'm actually a drone professional. I have a Part 107 Remote Pilot and Command Certificate, and uh, that allows me to actually do commercial work, uh, photography and mapping and all sorts of fun stuff like that. But uh, this is a really cool use of drones to save lives. And uh, what it is, um, well, let's kind of go back and talk about some of these horrible wars. You know, if you think about uh, the conflicts that were in the former Yugoslavian republics uh, during the 1990s, uh, one of the bad things about those were these things called butterfly landmines. And what these landmines, uh, they're very easy to deploy. They're made out of plastic, so they're uh, almost impossible to pick up with metal detectors. And uh, they can be surface deployed, which means somebody could fly an airplane over and they just drop these things on the ground. Somebody steps on one, it explodes, there goes a leg or an arm or a life. Well, uh, Alex Nikulin and Timothy DeSmet are uh, professors at New York's uh, Binghamton University. And they started thinking about these little plastic uh, mines and they said, how can we detect these using cheap consumer drones. Well, what they did is they mounted infrared cameras on these drones and then they used those to conduct very early morning flights over an area where these PFM-1 butterfly mines had been surface deployed. Well, what they found was that because the mines conducted heat from the rising sun uh, a lot more quickly than the surrounding rocks did, well, they had a distinct thermal signature as seen by these infrared cameras. And that allowed the mines to be detected with tremendous amount of accuracy. Well, what these guys are hoping that they can do, and they want to refine the technology, and they would love to be able to create a fully autonomous multi-drone system uh, that they could deploy anywhere, and it would require very little human input to go out and not only seek the mines, but also destroy them. There are actually mine-destroying drones out right now, one called Spectrodrone and another one called the Mine Cafone Drone. Uh, Nikulin made a comment here. He said, we believe our method holds great potential for eventual widespread use in post-conflict countries as it increases detection accuracy and it allows for rapid wide area assessment without the need for an operator to come into contact or even proximity to the minefield. And that's important. You don't want people going out and uh, blowing up while they're uh, trying to find mines. Nikulin also said, critically, once further developed, this methodology can greatly reduce both costs 
and labor required for mine clearing operations across these post-conflict regions. My second story today is uh, kind of, I guess you could say, part of my love of uh, space exploration. I think it's just been great, um, especially in the United States, how successful we've been at sending robots to uh, go and explore the the surface of Mars. Hopefully we'll get people there soon. But uh, did you know that right now there is a really, really nasty dust storm that uh, is basically, it's a complete global weather event on the planet right now. Now, uh, what this has done is the little Opportunity rover, uh, you know, if you'll remember Spirit and Opportunity, uh, well, Opportunity got knocked offline because it's not getting any sunlight, it's solar powered, and it's having all sorts of issues. Well, Curiosity, on the other hand, that's a much larger rover, and it's uh, powered by a uh, radioisotope thermal generator. It's cruising around, not having any problems. So uh, it's been taking pictures of the uh, Martian sky as it gets darker and darker and darker. Uh, interesting thing is that these two rovers are on opposite sides of Mars, so they can pretty much, um, you know, tell how this has been spreading around. Now, this is not a new event. Uh, the last time they had one of these global dust storms on Mars uh, was back in 2007, and that was uh, five years before Curiosity uh, landed at uh, what they call Gale K uh, Crater. Now, the Opportunity rover has been uh, on the plains of Meridiani Planum on the opposite side of Mars uh, since 2004. And during that 2007 uh, dust storm, NASA lost contact with uh, Opportunity back then due to low power levels from the solar panels. Now, uh, NASA lost contact with Opportunity last week, uh, missed a check-in call on June 12th, and they're pretty sure that it's probably in low power mode. You know, it's just kind of waking up every once in a while to see if its batteries have enough power to uh, phone home. Uh, but any science operations are just out of the question right now. They're waiting for the storm to end. Uh, NASA officials wrote a separate update and they said uh, a recent analysis of the rover's long-term su survivability in Mars uh, extreme cold suggests opportunities, electronics, and batteries can stay warm enough to function. Regardless, the project doesn't expect to hear back from opportunity until the skies begin to clear over the rover. Now this uh, dust storm started on May 30th and uh, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which of course is orbiting the planet Mars, uh, saw it happening and uh, scientists have been kind of uh, measuring the amount of sunlight blocking haze in the Martian atmosphere. Uh, the current tau at uh, Curiosity's site is uh, above 8.0, and the last tau at uh, Opportunity was over 11, which is pretty incredibly bad. Uh, the pictures are uh, incredible too. You can see, you know, it's basically almost black in the sky right now, just because of all the, the dust. 
Uh, during the last storm, it said only the tallest volcanoes on Mars were poking above the desk. Uh, they don't know uh, when this will clear. It'll be uh, interesting to see what happens. Uh, NASA's got a couple other uh, I, uh, um, orbiters out there, Mars Odyssey and uh, MAVEN, which is the Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution Mission. They're both out there. Uh, European Space Agency has Mars Express and the ExoMars Trace Gas Orbiter, and India has the Mars Orbiter mission. Um, everybody's kind of taking a look there. So uh, it'll be interesting to see when this happens. We'll be sure to update you in a future episode. Okay, the first segment of the show, of course, I told you about uh, drones that were kind of able to, uh, through use, the use of infrared cameras, uh, find things like uh, uh, mines, landmines. Well, one of the great uses of, of drones has been in search and rescue, where uh, in a lot of cases they're able to send up drones that have infrared cameras, and if somebody is know, fallen and they can't get up out in the woods, what they'll do is, uh, you know, they can send these over and they can see a hot spot out there and uh, send rescue teams in to actually uh, check on the people or see if they can get them back there. Well, sometimes people don't want to be found. And let's say that you uh, are in a future battlefield and you're out there and uh, you're trying to keep the other guys' drones from coming over and shooting at you. Well, uh, it's uh, actually, you know, something where you might want to cover yourself up with a lot of, uh, like, dead grass or something like that to hopefully keep the heat from uh, your body from being seen by a drone. Well, some guys at the University of Wisconsin-Madison came up with a really cool material, and, uh, what they're calling it, um, I guess you could call it uh, a cloaking material. Now, it's not a cloaking device like you saw on, on Star Trek, but it's a uh, way to keep infrared detectors from seeing heat. It's an ultra-thin stealth sheet. Um, it's a uh, flexible material. Um, I said right now they use like heavy metal armor or thermal blankets, but this is very lightweight and uh, it's very inexpensive. It's less than one millimeter thick. And uh, this sheet can absorb about 94% of any infrared light it encounters. Uh, what that means is that if you happen to be under or behind this material, you become almost invisible to infrared detectors. Uh, that's really absolutely cool. Uh, the cool thing about this is it absorbs light in the mid to long wa uh, wavelength infrared range. That's the type of light that your body uh, temperature uh, is emitting at. So pretty cool stuff there. Uh, now the other neat thing about this is these guys uh, went ahead and they uh, put some electronic heating elements into the stealth sheet. And uh, that allows them to go in and create almost like a disguise uh, so that they can trick infrared cameras. So what they're doing is uh, intentionally deceiving infrared detectors by preventing or presenting, excuse me, a false heat signature. So let's say you've got a tank and you're 
you know, you know that there's a drone on the way. You put the sheet over the tank and uh, you could make the tank look like a fence or a high, highway guardrail or, a, you know, maybe some piping out in the middle of nowhere. And that's what the infrared detector is going to see. Um, what are they using to be able to trap infrared light? Well, it's a material that's called black silicon. And uh, it's uh, used in solar cells right now. It absorbs light because uh, what they have are millions of nanowires that are all pointing up like a, like a forest. And incoming light reflects back and forth between these vertical spires, so to speak, bouncing around uh, in the material instead of escaping and being reflected back. So although black silicon's been known to uh, absorb visible light, these guys uh, at the University of Wisconsin went, hey, this is really cool. We can use it to trap infrared. And the way they did that is they made much taller nanowires. Uh, they make these nanowires by using tiny, tiny particles of silver to help etch down into a thin layer of solid silicon. And they get this you know, forest, if you will, of tall needles. And uh, both the nanowires and the silver particles absorb the infrared light. Um, so pretty cool stuff here. Uh, like they say, it also has a flexible backing that has a lot of small air channels, and that prevents this stealth sheet from heating up too quickly as it absorbs infrared light. That's kind of important if you're covering something like a tank, you know, it's been running its turbine engine for a while, it's uh, just radiating heat all over the place. Well, it's gonna need some place to uh, actually send out that uh, infrared and it looks like the sheet can actually uh, grab some of that heat. W wonderful, wonderful uh, use of technology. And it'll help us hide from those people seeking drones that are gonna be flying around one of these days. Well, police in the U.S., uh, well, police and other law enforcement agencies uh, probably aren't going to be real happy because last week the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that police must obtain a warrant if they want to look at location data uh, from cell towers. Now, if you've watched any cop show over the past 10 to 15 years, uh, one thing you know is that uh, they're always... You know, sitting around and, and saying, oh, we'll follow this guy's cell phone and we can figure out where he is from the cell towers and all the rest of this stuff. Well, um, in a five to four majority opinion on a case called Carpenter versus the United States, the, uh, uh, let's see, I think it was Chief Justice John Roberts said that given the unique nature of cell phone location records, the fact that the information is held by a third party does not by itself overcome the user's claim to Fourth Amendment protection. And Roberts uh, went into more details that obtaining location and data in general should be treated as a search. So police have to show probable cause before they can go ahead and do this. Now, uh, they uh, made, had made a claim uh, basically that, uh, you know, since the records were being held by carriers, 
that meant that there was no reasonable expectation of privacy, uh, the court basically said, hey, we've had these huge shifts in technology and what we consider to be uh, privacy anymore. So that's kind of altered our concepts of what privacy is. Uh, Sprint was involved in this. Sprint Corporation and its competitors are not your typical witnesses, said uh, Roberts. Unlike the nosy neighbor who keeps an eye on comings and goings, they are ever alert and their memory is nearly infallible. Uh, now, this Timothy Carpenter in Carpenter versus United States, he was a robbery convict at the heart of the case. And uh, police apparently obtained 12,898 location points and tracked him over a course of 127 days. The American Civil Liberties Union came to his defense, and uh, they lost. So, tough. Kind of bad there. Anyway, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this uh, kind of uh, evolves in the future. I'm sure that there will probably be another case at some point or another looking at a similar type of uh, legal situation, and uh, it could go the other way the next time. But uh, this was interesting also in that uh, it's really kind of a a landmark uh, decision in terms of what's going to be required uh, to not only get in and look at records, uh, not only of location, but other cell phone records if you happen to be uh, police. Well, that's it for episode two of Tangible Tech. Um, we're not always going to be doing these uh, roundups of, you know, kind of interesting tech news. Uh, sometimes I'll be interviewing people and, you know, about one particular topic. So uh, look forward to ha- doing some of those here in the near future. Uh, once again, we are not fully uh, up and running yet. In other words, uh, at this point, the podcast is only being uh, broadcast, so to speak, by Anchor.fm. Hopefully this week we'll start seeing it on a lot of the other uh, networks that are out there and uh, we'll get a lot more listeners. Actually, I was pretty amazed with how many listeners we had with the first episode. Very cool to see. Tell your friends about this uh, podcast if you like it. And uh, I would love to hear feedback from people. After this uh, podcast actually gets published, I'm going to uh, send out a request to have people listen to it and provide feedback. And remember, your feedback could be included in the next episode. So let me know what you think. If you don't like the recording, uh, I used to use a microphone and uh, actually do a lot of uh, editing uh, and read a script and do things like that. If you think this is uh, something that needs a little bit more work in terms of smoothness and the rest of that good stuff, if you don't like the recording quality, let me know. Uh, that's feedback that is good to hear. We'll uh, see you in the very near future on another episode of Tangible Tech. Have a great week. <music>